In the early 1980s, the Night Stalker had the people from San Francisco to Los Angeles and all points in between living in fear. By the time he was captured by an enraged mob, there were 14 people dead and dozens more left to deal with the wake of his wrath. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I'm Dave Jari. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Quarter. How we doing? Uh, we'd like to welcome our newest debauched member, Anna. Debauched. Debauched. I like it. Debauched. I love it. Yes. And her name is Anna Dady. Thank you very much, Anna. Your support means the world to us. You can become one of the debauched as well by joining our Patreon. Or if you want to become a barista through Buy Me a Coffee and buy us one or more coffees to help support the podcast, like our friend Trent Gobble recently did. Uh, thank you, Trent. Thank yes, you. Thank you, Trent. Uh, links to our Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee are in the episode description, or you can go directly to criminalafpodcast.com backslash support. Now. For those of you joining us for the first time, this is a true crime podcast that we talk of murder, rape, torture, assault, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be some vulgar language. Like cunt. Yes. We have oh, to bring that. We have I'm, to, getting, I'm getting real comfortable getting saying it. Yeah, 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 I'm getting good. We have good. to bring it back. It's been a little while since we talked about cunt. Oh, God. No, see, you just <laughs> ruined it again. Damn. <laughs> What? We have to normalize it. That's true. That's true. Say it. Say it again. Cunt. See? It's not so bad. No. Shit cunt. Dog cunt. All the cunts. All the cunts. All the cunts. All the cunts. Now, we understand that Criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. Peace. But if it is, welcome welcome to to the debauchery. Mail call. Mail call. We put out an Ask Us Anything on our Instagram story prior to the recording of a new episode for a chance to be answered on the episode, and we've had some uh, pretty good interactions so far with our friends out there. It's my favorite segment. Yeah. And our friend, Pickle Jenny 420 would like to know... What's up, Pickle Jenny? She would like to know, what is our favorite true crime story? So are we talking like a fictional, non-fiction, like... I think it could be anything, yeah. right? A true crime. True crime is a pretty vast genre. Right. So I think you could, I mean, you can go all the way. It doesn't have to be serial killers, murderers, that stuff. You can yeah. go to the Capone, you know, crime family, the, so you know, it, the mob. Have, the, it, does it have to be real? A real story? I, I think that's, that's, this here's the thing too is... Mm-hmm. We are criminal AF. We're not going to just... We're, we're eventually going to get out of this serial killer vibe that we've been in for a while. You yeah. Know I mean, we're going we're gonna to try to tackle some other things, well, too. Well, there's really nothing like murder. Though. I know. It's I so... Murder, it's yeah. juicy. It's, it's juicy. juicy. But we, we are going to tackle some other things, too. Yeah. Um, well, I would say if, if we're going based off of... Uh, like, if we're doing real life, it's always going to be Kemper. I love the fucking story of Kemper. Like, yeah. Eat, breathe, shit, fucking Kemper. It's your guy. Now, if we're going like a like a... Like a like a novel or or something like that. It's the uh, K. Scarpetta series from Patricia Cornwell. I've never even heard of that. Oh my god, dude! You want to talk about edge of your seat? Read it from really? front to back, like storytelling. Oh, such I'll a great series! Such a great series. I'll be interested. If you're interested, I'll be interested. Yeah. I know I will. Well, that's mine anyway. The question was obsessed with, correct? What, what is, is your, your favorite? Your favorite. Mm. I know it sounds cliche because it's a. It's more mainstream now. Everybody's seen the Netflix documentary and all that stuff. But uh, the story of Chris Watts, right now, my, it changes Ooh, at all times. I like that one. Because I mean, I know it's mainstream. Everybody's seen the documentary on Netflix. It's just I was so – and I, I have to give credit to Netflix at that point because they did such a good job of making you there and present. The home videos, it almost felt like you were watching the murder happen. Ugh, yeah. And, it was, and, it's, and to this day, that, that, that case it makes no sense to me. Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense to me. That's why I, I it's my favorite one right now, I think. Because like, dude, if you just didn't want to be with a woman, why why did you go? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's ugh. Well the whole the whole thing about that story and it, I mean, it's it's horrific. You know, he kills the wife, he kills the daughters and everything. Those poor girls, but, dude. Yeah. And like one of them actually like witnessed their sister being smothered. Yeah, of course. You know? And but when you actually like think after all of that, you know, they had the 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 oil tanks 
Yeah. That the girls the, are putting on the job site. Did you see the hole to the oil tank? Yeah. Like the top down. If we everybody, I mean, like not, I said, everybody's seen yeah, it. Yeah, you're not fitting. No, you're definitely squeezing. You're doing something to the body in order to make it fit through that hole. So not only did he kill his daughters, but he f- fucking did something to make them fit through that hole. And that is, oh my god! If if there's anybody, I will say it right now. If there's anybody I could put a bullet through their fucking head right now, with yeah, no questions asked, sure. it would be him. He's a piece of fucking shit. It, it, and it's it's the reason why I I I, I don't lo- I love's not a, the best word to use, but like why I'm a, I really like that story right now is is because I'm trying I try to put myself in his mindset. And, and it's it, impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. It's like, dude, you had why did you have to go that far? You got yourself a new girlfriend, whatever. You, I know they were they were fighting and they had this, this and that and this, but for what? And it's, it, I think it is one of those things where like I can't have my, I, I want, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. Situation, yeah. yeah. Where he didn't want to leave her, but he didn't want her to move on and this and that. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, yeah. I would say that is probably my currently because it, it'll change. Yeah. Because, because honestly, the Idaho murders are coming up there yeah. right now at this point. And I can't wait till we do that There's episode. still a lot of fucking questions about that. Yeah, we still have to get the... We, they got to go through the trial. We got to get the information. But Ooh. I guarantee you when after all this is said and done, the Idaho murders will be up there for me too. Yeah. Because that motherfucker was the dumbest piece of shit that I have ever, <laughs> ever witnessed in my life. Uh, like, you're a criminal justice major, you piece of shit, yeah. dude. Not, not even a major. He's going for his Whatever. doctorate. Take away. You, he deserves. They should revoke his fucking degree. Obviously, he didn't pay attention a day in class. Yeah. 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 I mean, you bring up a good point. It's like any any murder, any crime story that has to do with like with children or or a parent deciding to take yeah. that to take that leap to murder their kids. You know, like you know, Chris Watts one. And what's the other one? Uh, Susan Smith back in the uh, was the eighties and nineties or whatever. Um, where she killed her kids because the man she was talking to didn't want to have kids. Yeah. Didn't want kids. That's so crazy to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's so I mean, crazy. Well, that. I'm sorry. There's no dick that good and there's no pussy that good to nah. fucking off my kids. No, I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. You know what I mean? And that's that's the, the thing that sticks out for me with the Chris Watts story is the truck ride. It, it, regardless of every all everything that i've you know all the information that you get from the netflix series i put myself in that truck that truck when he's driving yeah. to the site and then that little that poor little girl that breaks my heart oh, to say like to like you know what i mean i forgot the actual words from it um are you going to do me like you did cc yeah, like how like dude it's like daddy how? are you going to do me like you did that, cc that puts a regular person that has a regular mindset and and it it puts them into like it shows the disconnect that somebody who can attempt, who can murder, how they they just they switch it off. How you don't just like in that crumble, moment crumble, crumble, crumble to the ground and be crumble. like, what the fuck did I just do? Oh, you know, it's and that's the thing. It sounds it's cute the way she says it, yeah. and it, it like I, oh, God, yeah, fuck that guy. He's a piece of shit. Yep. All right, thank you, Pickle Jenny, four twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to do a bowl right now. <laughs> it didn't sound like a bowl. Uh, so once again, you know, we'll put out Ask Us Anything prior to us recording a new episode. And, uh, yeah, shoot us your questions and we'll try to get you on an episode. Criminal AF will be back after this quick break. Shit. I think it's time to go to Tractor Supply. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are there tractor supplies in Florida? Because that's common around here. <laughs> I'm actually curious. Florida mom arrested after her nine-year-old child messes up during driver's training. Wait. I know it's a wait, it's wait. a heavy. Say that again. It's a heavy uh, headline. Florida mom arrested after her nine-year-old child messes up during driver's training. Driver's training. Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. Newport Ritchie, Florida. What a fucking place. This, the, my favorite part about this is finding out all these fucking towns that live in Florida. All right. A mom in Florida has been arrested after attempting to teach her nine-year-old child how to drive. On Wednesday, in Newport Ritchie, officers responded to 6335 Grand Boulevard in reference to a motor vehicle crash. The investigation revealed that a nine-year-old child was operating the vehicle at the time of the crash. 
Now, you think, right? Yeah, yeah. You think that, oh, the mom was, like, sitting in the passenger side or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, in the yeah. vehicle letting, or okay. maybe even maybe the, the child sitting on the lap. Yep. The investigation revealed that the nine-year-old child was operating the vehicle at the time of the crash. Through videos of surveillance, the child's mother was seen speaking with the child through the driver's window, attempting to teach the child how to back the vehicle out of a parking space. What? Can the kid even see over the freaking windshield? No, she's nine. My my kid's eight, and I I know she couldn't even see, and she's tall in her grade. Right. The vehicle then accelerates quickly in reverse out of the parking spot, dragging the mother and crashing into a building, causing Uh. some substantial damage. Oh my god. There is a video we'll, we'll tag we'll put we'll post it on the uh Criminal AF Instagram too yeah. if you guys want to check that out. <laughs> the child was not injured th- injured thank god and the mother attempted to try <laughs> to trying to teach her child how to back up due to the confined parking situation. So, it, I take from that yeah. is that the door was too like closed too much for the mom to get in. So she was <laughs> like, "Hey baby, just jump in that car right there and back <laughs> up." <laughs> You know what I mean? You ever get caught when the car yeah, park's yeah, too close? Yeah, yeah. Come on, just bring it back Climbing a little bit. Climbing through the trunk like everybody else. The mother, Amy Lee Kidd, was arrested for child neglect and a permitting an unauthorized person to drive. That is nuts. That's crazy. Like, I mean, I can understand, you know, like, you know, there's going to be times where, you know, you probably have a little too much to drink and you just, no, she, you, you yeah. just need your nine-year-old to drive you home, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, man. That is such a Florida fucking thing ever. I, <laughs> Jesus. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, my God. Hey, Billy. Billy, I need to get behind the wheel, buddy. And shit, me at nine, I would have jumped in that car, too. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, what? I'd be like, fuck yeah. Let's go. (laughs) I love how it says, too. I'd be hitting, like, the windshield wiper. The surveillance surveillance camera just, she's talking, and then it shows the car just. Just guns. Just guns it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just, like, zero to 60 in five seconds right into the building across the street. Oh, my God. That is hilarious. Oh, man. And you would think if you trusted your kid enough to back up the car, it's probably done this before, right? Yeah. But you can tell that this is the first time this child has ever tried to back up a car. You know what I mean? Let's just bring it right to a fucking public park. Yeah. yeah. That is fucking hilarious. Crazy, crazy, crazy. But, you know, you almost come to expect it now at this point in Florida. Hey, I mean, it's not surprising. Some of these stories that we're hearing are just like, yeah, yeah, yeah I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Shit, at this point, it could be anything. And I I'd know. be like, yeah, <laughs> yep, that's, that sounds about right. Uh, uh, Florida woman identifies as a chicken <laughs> and shoots eggs out of her ass. Oh, yeah. yeah hey, wait. Seems... That... Never mind. I'm not going to go there. Go oh. <laughs> I mean, there are videos. For I was going to say, I've definitely seen that before. <laughs> In person. All right, go ahead. All right. This episode, we'll be talking about the man known as the Night Stalker. Oh, classic. Yes. Classic story. Richard Ramirez. Not the original Night Stalker. That's a different story. But the Night Stalker that we've all come to know and hate. Leather jacket wearing, long-haired, creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Satan worshiping. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. Here is chapter one of Night Stalk This Bitch. I'd stock this, bitch. Yeah, it comes into play later on. I like it. One of the most recognizable features on a person is their teeth. Whether it's straight, crooked, white, yellow, well-capped, or rotting, it can be said it is the defining feature that most people are drawn to. You will remember a person if you see their discolored, rotting teeth. This was the case for 56-year-old Lillian Doy on the morning of May 14, 1985, in Monterey Park in California. On the 13th, she and her husband Bill, 66, went to a Ford dealership and put a down payment on a family van. They had already had a Jaguar and a Cadillac, but with Bill suffering a heart attack three years earlier and Lillian recovering from a stroke, they wanted a vehicle that would better accommodate the retirement plans. Later that evening, she and Bill had settled into bed when there was a disturbance coming from within the house. Before Bill had a chance to get his gun, a tall, lanky shadow had appeared in the bedroom. The shadowy figure raced in, shot Bill in the face, and turned his attention to Lillian. The man restrained the disabled Lillian with thumb cuffs, but was distracted with the noises coming from Bill. He was still alive. Bill was shot through the upper lip. The bullet shredded his tongue and lodged in the back of his throat. 
The man brutally beat Bill into unconsciousness, left him for dead, and went about ransacking the house. Before he left, he returned to Lillian and savagely raped her. And just as quickly as the man appeared, he was gone. Shortly after, a 911 call was received by dispatch. It was Bill, barely clinging to life. He couldn't speak, and the only sounds the dispatcher heard was gasping for air and the sound of Bill gurgling on his own blood before he lost consciousness. Using their caller ID information, the dispatcher sent police to their address. When they arrived, they found Bill lying unconscious in the den, and Lillian was in the hallway with thumbcuffs still attached to her left hand. Bill died shortly after arriving at the hospital. When police questioned Lillian about the attack, she immediately described the man's teeth, some missing, others in a state of rapid decay. This was the same description, along with the murderer being a Hispanic with long, shaggy black hair given by victims lucky enough to survive the attacks. By July of 1985, police felt confident with the consistency in the description and made a plea to the public to help identify this mystery man, first dubbed as the Valley Killer and then more famously, the Night Stalker. To take a psychological look at how Richard Ramirez would become the Night Stalker, we need to start from the beginning. Born Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez on February 29, 1960 in El Paso, Texas, Richard was the youngest of Julian and Mercedes Ramirez's five children. His father was once a police officer in Juarez, Mexico, before coming to the United States to work as a laborer on the Santa Fe Railroad. Known for his fits of anger, Julian would take this rage out on the children and Mercedes. As for his mother, a kind, loving, devout Catholic who worked at a boot factory where safety was the least of the company's concerns. She was exposed to harmful chemical fumes while she was pregnant with her children and all five of them had forms of birth defects, ranging from respiratory difficulty to bone deformities. As a young boy, Richard was an extroverted happy child who loved to dance around and entertain his family, and his childhood friends recall Ramirez being friendly and popular. Two major head injuries, one when a dresser fell on his head at the age of two, requiring 30 stitches, and a second at the age of five when he was knocked unconscious by a park swing would leave Richard experiencing violent seizures. As an adolescent, he wanted nothing more than to play football with his friends, but because of these seizures, his mother forbid it. Around the age of nine, it is believed Richard and his brother were being molested by a school teacher. This, coupled with his father's severe physical abuse, Richard began to withdraw. At the age of 11, he found solace in Miguel Ramirez an older cousin and decorated Green Beret who had recently returned from the war in Vietnam. Richard spent countless hours with Miguel every day. Later that year, Richard moved in with his older sister Ruth and her husband Roberto. Roberto was an obsessive voyeur and would begin bringing Richard with him to peep into people's windows. So Ramirez had some uh, fucked up teeth. Right. That's an understatement. That's an understatement. He had like four teeth in his face. Hey, you guys. Hey. <laughs> I love you, Chuck. <laughs> now, he actually he actually got them fixed uh, prior to his trial after he got arrested and everything. Well, I mean, he's going to be on the main stage. Yeah, you know what I mean? He had a nice, nice little grill going. Yeah. Yeah, so Ramirez, he went through some shit as a kid. His father was a, a drunk, abusive asshole, and he used to beat on the mother and all the kids and stuff like that. And Ramirez would take, you know, pr pretty much the brunt of it. But if I would say that there was any person that shaped his his youth, would be his cousin Miguel. Miguel yeah, because yeah. uh, Miguel, you know, he introduced Ramirez to his first drugs, which marijuana. So he's like 11 years old, smoking dope, smoking dope with his with his cousin. And not only that, but Miguel used to share pictures of uh, women that he raped and killed during the Vietnam War. And now these pictures, you know, obviously they're polar Polaroids, you know, fucking extremely graphic. It includes, you know, Miguel posing with severed severed heads 
of, and he actually had sex with these women. Yeah. And then he'd just fucking kill them. Dude, war is hell, Dismember them and everything. War is hell. Yeah, so this began to shape Ramirez's view on uh, sex and how he associated violence with uh, sexual gratification and because these pictures would actually arouse him. Yeah. His young mind. So uh, not only that, but Miguel used to teach Ramirez, you know, tactics that he learned in the military. You know, like how to use your surroundings to your advantage, how to use stealth to sneak up on your enemy, you know, without being detected. How to be a perfect stalker. How to be a perfect stalker, yeah. And Ramirez would actually almost immediately put these tactics to use because not not much longer after this, you know, he would break into people's homes and he wouldn't really do anything. He just liked Watch. breaking into people's homes while they're home, knowing that he couldn't they couldn't catch him. Like they had no idea that he was in their house, you know. So it started off a little creepy like that. And then again, you know, he would obviously use these tactics when when he uh, started murdering. You have to talk about how unfortunate it is, too, that you work your ass off to get in this country. You get a job in a shoe factory. And because of the job that you're trying to support your family, all five of your children are born with birth defects because of that situation. Right. Because of the chemicals. Oh, it's so it's that sucks. That's yeah. horrible. Yeah, his, his, his mom was like. Very religious. She was very like loving and caring. Yeah. Oh, mijo. Um, you know, and, and she truly tried her best to care for all of the children, and which was very difficult. Yeah, when you're working probably sixty hours when a you're week. Working, yeah, and like obviously hazardous conditions, and and then come home and have your husband beat the fuck out of you. Yeah. You know, and your kids. So God bless her. Now Ramirez, when he was thirteen. Uh, he's still hanging around with Miguel, and he was present when uh, Miguel and his girlfriend got into a violent argument, and Miguel had shot her in the face. Now, Richard was there, witnessed it, and he was so close that her blood sprayed on his face and body. Wild. Yeah. And so yeah. Talk about traumatic right. for a young kid to see that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ugh. And then, you know, he after that, he became withdrawn from his family and friends, and uh, he would begin escaping from his home to uh, sleep in a cemetery after experience all of this you know and, and basically make becoming homeless at the age of 13 yeah um, now his sister took took him in he was like listen you come live with us you know everything's good all sort of kind of stuff he moves in with the sister her husband is a fucking pervert okay he's borderline pedophile and he would bring uh, Ramirez around to peep in through people's windows. So now, here's Ramirez, 13, 14 years old. He saw heads, uh, pictures of de- decapitated women that his uncle had uh, raped and murdered. He actually watched his uncle murder someone. Uh, his father's an abusive fucking asshole. His sister takes him in, and now he's got this father figure, brother-in-law, who is now, hey, Let's go around and watch women hey, undress. Go be, yeah, yeah. You wanna, you wanna, Let's go beat off and outside somebody's you, fucking window. At this point, you feel horrible for this kid. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's that's the hardest part about yeah. the story, too. Is yeah, like he had no there's no shot, chance. no there's fucking no chance. chance in hell. And not and, only that, like we talk in the story, you know, when he was younger too, he he got fucking hit over the head twice. So now he's like mentally, yeah, he's like got some screws loose. Yeah, but on top of it too is it's he's what? How old is he at this point? Eleven. Uh. 13. 13. He's yeah. 13 years old in the the peak of his sexual identity. Oh, yeah. When he's learning what he right. likes, what he doesn't like. Oh, yeah. 13, this, 13 years old, you're probably whacking off four or five times a day. Yes, correct. Yeah. And every and the violent nature and crazy things that he's seen. Like, you've he, literally, this kid has been set up to fail yep. from every aspect that you could. Mm-hmm. You now, you, now you wonder why, you know, how will this child ever turn out to be a contrib- contributed member of society? He, he won't. He won't. He won't. He won't. He's tarnished. And it's so shameful because, you know, I don't know. I, 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 it just drives me fucking nuts when you see a, you know, when you see a kid that has opportunities. He, he's, he's a loving child. He's, he's outgoing. He's friend, you know, has lots of friends. You know, he w- wants to be a part of the community, you know, and everything like that. And all of this shit is just holding him back and holding sure. him back and holding him back. And now it's too late. I mean, they say kids brains are like sponges yeah. and it's true whatever like you they become a product of their environment it's weird they like literally they'll mirror right into what they're used to yeah like i was reading this one thing where uh 
it said that uh, parents only have control of their children till about the age of 10. Uh, yeah. Like basically everything that you teach your children, you know, like morals and, and, and whatnot, you have until the age of 10 before society and, and outside sources, outside friends, sources stuff. you know, start, start taking control. Dude, I see it now at eight. Yeah. At eight, like she tries to blend in with the kids at school and, yeah. and asks to do things different because of this and that. Right. It's I, I would definitely say 10 is probably where, like, you lost them completely. I mean, yeah. you, you still have no, – they're still here. Them. You have until that point to teach them what is right, what is wrong, the, the, how the to base, be – The base, a base of right. – you know what I mean? Something – like a strong base to come back to. Right. When, when you start – you know what I mean? Everybody yeah. remembers when they fuck up in school, and then, yeah. like, you're like, oh, man, I yeah. remember that. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> wish I didn't do that. Yeah. But you have a base to come back to at that point right, that your right. parents set forth and forward for you. So now uh, – Ramirez, he leaves school. He's still a teenager. He goes out on his own. And that's where we'll pick up in uh, chapter two. High school classmates remember Ramirez, who had changed into a troublemaker who took great pride in showing off his burglary skills, often pickpocketing the money out of pockets and purses from fellow classmates and teachers. He was going into homes with people still in the house just to prove he could walk about without being noticed. There were a rash of break-ins throughout the neighborhood, and while many people suspected it was Ramirez, nobody could prove it. They also noticed another significant change, his personal hygiene. He rarely brushed his teeth and people would comment about the foul odor that would emit from his mouth as his teeth were beginning to rot. Shortly after turning 17, Ramirez had quit school and because of his excessive truancy, had failed to ever make it past a ninth grade education. After run-ins with police for marijuana possession and receiving a 50-day suspended sentence for petty theft, Ramirez left El Paso for the San Francisco Bay in 1980. Ramirez's stay in San Francisco was brief, only about four months but he bounced frequently from place to place throughout other areas of the bay until 1983. While there, he roomed with a man who would later say that it was known Ramirez could not be trusted. Personal items would mysteriously disappear, but he was never called out on it because of a fear factor. Ramirez was obsessed with guns and knives, he would say. Ramirez would frequently travel back and forth between Los Angeles and San Francisco over the course of 1983 through 1985, with periodic trips back to his hometown in El Paso. Although a friend would say that Ramirez had no steady income, she claims he would take a plane in between the cities, meaning that his robberies were becoming more frequent and profitable. He also began using cocaine, and his belief in Satanism, which first stemmed during his time with his brother-in-law Roberto, was becoming more prominent. After a stint in prison in Los Angeles for auto theft, the city would be stricken with fear as they were about to be introduced to the Night Stalker. You know what fascinates me? What? What kids in high school think is cool. Like and and then how you your views change because I mean everybody think like him thinking him showing off his pickpocketing skills and like yeah. pretending to steal money and stuff like that guy it almost cracks me up because it's like everybody who's more mature in high school like you know you know you you always have that instance where you, when you're younger like yeah. you be like dude what are you doing yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this guy's walking around school pickpocket hey you guys want to see me pickpocket this cash like yeah. it, it just goes to show how like. Immature he is at, right, that, po- at where, that point in his life. Where his mentality is yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. Obsessed with guns and knives and this and that. Mm-hmm. It, it, he definitely was the weird kid in school, let's be honest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so he ended up leaving school. Um, he never got past a ninth grade education, and he was like 16, 17 at the time. Yeah. So, But he began working at a, a local hotel for his first job, and they gave him access to all the rooms, occupied or not. He was actually fired from this job because a guest of the hotel came back to his room and found Ramirez attempting to rape his wife. And this is at? 17. 17 years old. Yeah. So Ramirez is just like, hmm, she's cute. I'm going to swipe her because I have I have 
access to every single room in this fucking hotel. Makes you. It makes you. <laughs> makes you think. Next time you're at a, a great, re- a beautiful resort in, yeah. uh, of all inclusive in Mexico, just. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The guest comes back, finds Ramirez trying to rape his his wife. Now, Ramirez was arrested after being severely beat by the man, mind you. Good. But, uh, however, charges were dropped because the man and the wife were from out of town, and they failed to return for the court hearing. So he was never, charges were dropped. Now, Ramirez, at this point, has never held another job since then. But he also never needed one. Because now his his stealing and his thieving and whatever he wanted, he would get from people's uh, breaking into people's homes or breaking into stores and whatnot. And it's it's something to note now that this is when he started using LSD. So now the I mean he wasn't just doing LSD. He was, well, doing, I mean, he, was he was doing anything he could get his hand on at right. that point. But th- this is when his LSD usage started really picking up. Now, when you put, when you take into context, like all the stuff that he already has in his head, like all the nightmarish yep. shit that he's he's dealt with growing up, you know, he's already on a on a path to fucking nowhere. Correct. And you actually see this now, you know, as he's going into his late teens. Now, introduce LSD to all this shit for sure. Uh, uh, studies have shown too that if you have tendencies for schizophrenia, uh, any mental disorders, if you are going to have them later on in life, because usually, which is strange, that people mostly develop develop schizophrenia and stuff later in their pubescent years. So like 18 plus, 21, sometimes 22, usually like 22 is the, the cutoff. They say that LSD use at an earlier age will trigger those events sooner. Uh, not Not so much, it doesn't mean that if you try it, you're going to go schizophrenic. Right. It's saying if you already have the tendencies to become a schizophrenic, a psychopath, these these weird mental disorders, that will trigger trigger it earlier. So, of course, his brain is already a little messed up, mm-hmm. and you're just adding fuel to the fire at this point. Yeah, there's uh, something else I forgot to mention earlier is that with the Peep and Tom brother-in-law, yeah. spying people on dressing, uh, he was also a sa- uh, Satanist. He's a what? This poor boy, yeah. dude. He was a satanic Every single worshiper. person he met at yeah. this point. So now let's let's uh, let's put this into context here. So his father beat the shit out of him. His uncle uh, basically taught him how to uh, murder people and uh, put images of, of what sex should look like to him. Yeah, you know, uh, witnessed a murder, uh, got brought around, showed how to uh, peep on uh, women undressing. He didn't just witness a murder, by the way. Had blood spray on right. his face. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was wearing it, um, being brought around, peeping in, into women's windows, and teaching Satanism. Let's believe in Satan. Yeah. And why, don't you, why don't you draw some LSD too while you're at it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's dose up real quick. So now this is where Ramirez goes from the petty theft, breaking, breaking, and entering, and going through with murder here in chapter three. Richard Ramirez would not become your typical serial killer. His surge from petty theft to cold-blooded killer was not triggered because he was scorned by an ex-girlfriend, as some suggest with Ted Bundy. Nor did he have mother issues like Ed Kemper and Michael Ross. Ramirez is what they call a disorganized killer, a sociopath who rapes and kills on a whim when his bloodlust peaks. His murders were not planned out, and many occurred simply because the victims were home when he decided to rob them or because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Ramirez also had no consistent victimology. His victims transcended sex and ethnicity. The reign of the Night Stalker began in Glassell Park on June 28, 1984. Jack Vincow would visit his mother nearly every day as he lived in the apartment just above hers. However, on this day, things appeared to be a bit off. When Jack arrived, he noticed that the window was wide open in the living room and the screen was pushed in. He also noticed that the front door was left unlocked. When he entered the home, the living room was in disarray as if someone had ransacked it. Calling out to his mother with no response, he pressed in further. Lying on the bed, he found his mother, 79-year-old Jenny Vinko. 
He rushed to her and quickly found that she was dead, with her throat slashed clean through, nearly decapitating her. Jack ran out of the home and called police. Police were baffled as to who would do this to an elderly woman, but as the months passed by, they would realize that their work into finding her killer would take a spiraling, horrific path. Nearly a full 10 months would pass, and the police were no closer to finding Jenny's killer when the Night Stalker struck again. 1985 would become the year of the Night Stalker, when his attacks would become so frequent, some would occur on the same day. At 11.30pm on March 17th in the LA suburb of Rosemead, 21-year-old Maria Hernandez arrived at her upscale condo. She drove into her garage, exited her car, and approached the entrance to her condo. Maria explains the rest in her testimony. As I approached the side door in the garage, I heard something behind me. I turned and saw a tall man dressed in black with a blue ACDC hat pulled low on his head. He appeared to be Hispanic. He came rushing at me, pointing a gun at my face. When he was about a foot away, I raised my hand to defend myself just as he fired. I felt a cross between pain and heat rush through my right hand and I fell to the ground and just laid there. He opened the door to the condo and pushed my body behind it. When he was inside, I got up and ran out of the garage. I stumbled and fell as I ran to the front of the building. That's when I heard a loud noise. I then saw the same man exit through the front door. I hid behind a car, but he noticed me and pointed the gun at me again. I cried, please don't shoot me again. He put the gun down and ran away. I stayed there until I heard a car screech away. I went into the front door of the condo calling out Dale's name, but she didn't respond. I walked into the kitchen. That's when I saw her. I bent down on my knees and wanted to see if she was still alive, but she was gone. She was gone. Dale was Maria's roommate, 34-year-old Dale Okazaki. Dale had heard a loud bang from inside the garage and approached the door Maria usually walks through. When she got to the kitchen, the man burst through the side door and Dale quickly hid behind the counter. But it was too late. The man saw Dale, approached her, and held the pistol directly against her head, pulling the trigger. She died instantly. Although Dale wasn't raped, her body was accosted as she was found with her blouse pulled up over her shoulders apparently so Ramirez could fondle her breasts. Maria was fortunate not to suffer the same fate because when she raised her hands to defend herself, she was holding her car keys in her right hand, which deflected the bullet. You would hope that this hell of a night would come to an end, but about 10 minutes later in Monterey Park, 30-year-old Tsai Leon Yu, known to her friends as Veronica, was driving home from her friend's house after spending the evening joking around and sharing childhood memories. The vehicle was driving erratically behind her. Veronica allowed the car to pass, which then, now in front of her, came to an abrupt stop. A man, later identified by a witness as Ramirez, exited his vehicle and approached Veronica, dragging her from the car. Ramirez then shot her twice in the chest before fleeing the scene. Veronica attempted to crawl away before collapsing. She was still alive when police arrived, but died shortly after. It was later confirmed at the autopsies of Dale and Veronica that they were both shot with the same 22 caliber pistol. So it makes it makes zero sense why he didn't kill Maria at that point. Well, I mean, actually, like later in his in his um, you know, murder spree. He did leave people alive so they could tell authorities that it, w it was the Night Stalker. Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. So, I mean, it is possible that he left her alive at that moment so she could... Maybe this was his first dabble into right. leaving a victim to, to to carry out the chilling words. Yeah, and, that, and I mean, that's the only thing that really would really make sense to me. Yeah, no, for sure. But as we can see, Ramirez is picking up his killing. Uh, now he's going with more than one in a day, and it only escalates from here. And we'll pick it up in Chapter 4. Criminal AF will be back after this quick break. What's good, everybody? 
Nothing says I am one of the debauched like criminal AF apparel and merchandise. Choose from multiple designs that fit your style and your attitude. For women, for men, around the home or at the office. You can look great repping Criminal AF wherever you go and help support the podcast as well by visiting criminalafpodcast.com backslash shop or click on the link in the episode description. Go get you some merch. Yes, sir. Less than a month later, on the morning of March 27, 1985, Peter Zazara, the son of 64-year-old Vincent, a retired investment counselor who now owned a pizzeria, had arrived to visit his father. Peter knocked and rang the doorbell repeatedly before noticing the door was unlocked. When he entered, he found the house ransacked. He located his father deceased in a den from a gunshot to the temple. Vincent's wife, 44-year-old Maxine, was found in the bedroom, her body stretched out and naked. She was shot in the head as well, but that wasn't all. Her eyes were gouged out of the sockets and she had been stabbed repeatedly in the face, neck, breast, abdomen, and groin area. All the stabbing was done post-mortem and there were signs of rape. May 14, 1985 brought the murder of Bill Doy and the rape of Lillian as discussed in Chapter 1. On May 29th, Ramirez arrived at the home of sisters Mabel Bell, 83, and 81-year-old Florence Lang, who also went by the names of Malville Keller and Blanche Wolfe, respectively. After finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned both women and used a frayed electrical cord to electrocute Mabel. He then moved on to Florence, who was disabled. He savagely raped her and then used Mabel's lipstick to draw a pentagram on Florence's thighs as well as the walls in both bedrooms. The women were found comatose, but alive, two days later. However, Mabel soon succumbed to her injuries. On July 2nd, Ramirez randomly selected a home to rob belonging to a widowed grandmother named Mary Cannon. After breaking in, Ramirez found Mary sleeping in her bed. He bludgeoned her with a lamp from her bedside before working his way through her house. He returned to the unconscious Mary and repeatedly stabbed her with a 10-inch butcher knife from the kitchen, killing her. July 5th brought Ramirez to the home of the Bennett family in Sierra Madre, California. Inside, he found 16-year-old Whitney Bennett asleep in her bed. Ramirez beat Whitney in the head with a tire iron, and when he failed to find the knife in the kitchen, he returned to her room and strangled her with an electrical cord. The cord began to emit sparks, and Whitney gasped for air. Ramirez stopped, believing that Jesus Christ saved her. Whitney survived, but required nearly 500 stitches to close the gaping wounds in her head. Now back in Monterey Park on July 7th, Ramirez broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Nelson. He found her asleep on a couch and then proceeded to beat her with his fists and kick her in the head, killing her before robbing her home. He stomped Joyce so hard he left a shoe print on her face. That same night, Ramirez entered the home of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. He attempted to beat and rape her prior to robbing the home. Before leaving, he made Sophie swear to Satan that there were no other valuables in the house. On July 20th, Ramirez purchased a machete before breaking into the Glendale home of Maxon and Leela Needing. He rushed into their bedroom and began hacking them with his machete. He attempted to shoot them, but the gun had jammed. With both Maxon and Leela pleading for their life, Ramirez cleared the gun and then shot them both in the head. After stealing property from the home, Ramirez returned to the deceased couple and further mutilated their bodies with the machete. He immediately pawned the merchandise from the needing home, and at 4.15 that same morning, broke into the home of Chanarong and Samkid Kavanath. He immediately killed Chanarong by shooting him in the head while he was asleep, and he beat Samkid. After discovering their eight-year-old son, Ramirez bound the young boy before returning to Samkid. 
He repeatedly raped her and forced her to perform oral sex next to her dead husband. He dragged her throughout the house demanding she show him where the valuables were, then disappeared into the night. 2 this day after all these episodes that we've done so far and all these stories that we've heard, I still don't understand why these people use 22 caliber guns. Yeah, I don't know. What, like, are you, I mean, coming from our background, we understand right. what bullets do and what, you know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it's like they're going, they're going squirrel hunting. Yeah, like, what are you, trying to kill a small game, dude? Yeah. With the, like, you're, like, and, I mean, it, I and understand. It's, it's, quiet. Bru- it's, it's quiet, but it's also brutal. Like if you're trying to, kill you know, somebody. kill somebody, you don't use a twenty-two. I mean, you have to be precise with a twenty-two. To <laughs> you got to be lucky. Yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can shoot somebody in the head and it won't kill them. And especially if you're, they're trying to make them quick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whenever, whenever a killer uses a gun, they're not trying to slowly torture these people or do that stuff. They're yeah. just trying to get rid of them real quick. And yeah. I mean, you have to be very precise, point blank. You have to be lucky, let's like, be honest. There's you, gotta a, there's a, you gotta hit somebody in the right spot or hit them in a spot numerous amount of times. It's oh, crazy. Yeah, now, I, now, I, who I knows? can see it. it's quiet. You it, know? It's very quiet. Yeah. That is true. It's And who knows at this point. It's what he, he He's a homeless dude living in LA, right. you know, bouncing around California, uh, San Francisco. It's probably whatever he can get at that point. True. So, true. But I'll never understand it. Use a, use a bigger caliber, buddy. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm going out, I'm, using, I'm going to Oh, with a with a bang, yeah, not a pew, <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Oh man, yeah. So actually, like during this during this uh, this time during the peak of the Night Stalker killings, uh, Richard Ramirez was actually staying at the famed Cecil Hotel, the in, infamous Cecil the infamous Hotel in Los Angeles. Everybody's seen that yeah. documentary, I think. Now, just to paint a little picture about the Cecil, I mean, even to this day, it's kind of like in a rougher. You know, and Skid Row. Skid what do you Row. mean it's a little it's rougher. rougher? Come on, bud. But I mean, I'm talking about back then. Back then, it was bad, like yeah. bad, bad. Uh, you can you can rent a room at the Cecil Hotel for fourteen dollars a day, pretty yep. much back then. Share the bathroom. Shared bathrooms. Um, at this time, during the Night Stalker, the Cecil was mainly occupied by like drug addicts, dealers, homeless, sure. uh, and in Ramirez's case, murderers and rapists. You know. Dude, it, was, it was a fucking free for all. Yeah. Could yeah. you imagine the, the the crowd you were hanging out with yeah. if you bought a room? You got Richard Ramirez in one yeah. room. Yeah. You sharing a bathroom with like yeah. the dr- local drug dealer. Yeah. There was the another. There's another serial killer that I stayed there too. I can't think of his name, but uh, he was like a, a foreign dude, like a reporter or something like that, or, a, or author. And he came to the United States and he was writing a book, and it was basically about him killing American f- fucking hookers. You know. Now, the Cecil Hotel was a place where a person like Ramirez could just basically walk out in the open and dump their bloody clothes in the trash bin. No one's going to say a word. And walk back through the lobby to their room, butt naked, and nobody's going to bat an eye. Yeah. That, be like, mm, that should... whatever. You know, so police would rarely be around the Cecil Hotel, and uh, one was reported as saying, uh, like, the police would go to the Cecil if they were called, but they would never ever just go and patrol the area. Yeah. And they never went because nobody would call them. You know? So Ramirez was free to walk in, walk out, blood, fucking cuts, bruises. Multiple people said that he's walked in with blood all over him and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Nobody, and would nobody say said anything. Yeah. They, they tell it afterwards. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah I yeah, saw yeah, him. Yeah, I yeah, saw yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. He, had blood. he had blood. I thought it was his blood. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, whatever. I don't ask questions as you're shooting up a fucking yeah. heroin. So yeah, so he was free to go there, dispose of whatever evidence he had in the fucking dumpster. Nobody, nobody gave a shit. Now, quick side note that I want to point out that, like our previous story with Charles Manson, uh, Ramirez was also uh, allegedly swayed by misinterpreting lyrics to a song. Now, with Manson, it was the Beatles, but with Ramirez, it was ACDC, and that was from the high. That's all I know. <laughs> Highway to the hell. hell. Yeah. So, actually, from the album Highway to Hell, uh, it was the song Night Prowler. Okay. Night Prowler. Which is about a boy sneaking into his girlfriend's bedroom late at night while her parents are asleep. Okay. I mean, who hasn't tried that was, at one point? I, I did. Yeah. I used to sneak by. All right. You want to hear the story time? Secret time? <laughs> you used to creep by their bedroom? My, my wife. Yeah. When uh Oh, okay. No, no, I don't want to tell that. Yeah. <laughs> My wife. No. 
so my wife we used to date in high school before we you know we we went different ways and then we ended up getting back together yeah. and uh, when we dated in high school i used to sneak under i her mom would be sleeping on the couch and i would army crawl <laughs> by the couch up her stairs and then i would sleep <laughs> <laughs> now that's terrifying if you think about uh, it because yeah, you're just you're asleep on the couch and some boy is army crawling by yeah. you like <laughs> you have no clue who he is you could and have he's been in nice your stalker. house i could have been you were good you were i was good, good. yeah i was good damn yeah straight up army crawl past <laughs> and now coming and from a parent's perspective yeah. i would shoot everybody i would be oh, yeah. i would lose my mind yeah. lose my mind yeah if I if I was sleeping on a couch and I saw some fucking little punk ass kid, seventeen army crawling, seventeen year old kid army crawling past me, oh, oh hell man, I would no. fucking murder him. I'd and then I the remember I would I would get right to the edge of the stairs and then I'd stand up and just bolt up the stairs. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm getting some tonight. Yeah. Uh, where were we? I forgot where yeah. we were. No, I got it. Okay. So you know I can see how uh, with with the song, I can see how Ramirez took it a different way, you know. But here's the here's the lyrics, just so you understand. Uh, was that a noise outside your window, or a shadow on your blind? And you lie there naked, like a body in a tomb, suspended animation as I slip into your room. Now I I can see how a nut job like Ramirez would be like, hey, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny uh, when you're reading those lyrics? Uh, now. The older generation always yells and screams about the newer generation's right. kind of music. These they're, damn they're, kids. These damn kids. They're, Get off the lawn, you little bastards. No, yeah, they're, they're poisoning our kids' minds and all this stuff, With right? Your rock With your rock and roll. Your witchcraft, and you're talking about yeah. satanic music. And your, talk, you just, your damn talk ticks. Did anybody, did you just hear the lyrics that the ACDC just yeah. said? What are we talking yeah. about here? Highway yeah. to hell. But boomers are like, yeah, maybe I love ACDC. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. It's the same uh, shit. It's, it's just different generations. You just yeah. don't like the new music. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Rant's over. Oh, man. <laughs> you just heard the lyrics yeah. to that song. Yeah. It's just as bad as anything yeah. that gets played today. I want to sneak in your room and fucking rape you yeah. while you sleep naked. But, yeah, you know, basically. God forbid, it's, you know, ACDC yeah. is classic, so yeah. we can't talk about how that was weird, but whatever. All right, go ahead. But they had the cool guy yeah, fucking yeah, skipping yeah. across the stage there. <laughs> it makes it okay. All right, so we're going into the last chapter here, and guess what happens? Spoiler alert. Ramirez gets captured. Yeah, okay. So we'll talk a little bit about that here in chapter five. August of 1985 would pick up right where July left off. After Chris and Virginia Peterson both survived gunshot wounds to their heads by the hands of Ramirez on August 6th, Ramirez was now at the home belonging to 31-year-old Elias and his 27-year-old wife, Sakina Abawath, at approximately 2.30 a.m. on August 8th. Ramirez entered the master bedroom and killed Elias with a bullet to the head. He grabbed Sakina and demanded she show him where they keep the valuables. After collecting the items, Ramirez sodomized Sakina, and while doing so, their three-year-old son entered the room. Ramirez tied the boy up and then continued to rape Sakina. By now, Richard Ramirez was fully aware of the media coverage his crimes were generating. After the murder of Elias Abawath, Ramirez left Los Angeles and returned to San Francisco. You would think he would lay low now that numerous descriptions and composite drawings have been distributed, but think again. On August 18th, he broke into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He immediately shot and killed 66-year-old Peter before moving on to beat and rape 62-year-old Barbara. When he was finished raping her, he shot her in the head and left her for dead. Unbeknownst to Ramirez, the police were collecting some valuable evidence that could be used to connect the crime scenes. For example, the bullets from all the crime scenes could be traced back to the same gun. And let us not forget about the shoe print, the one that was left on Joyce Nelson's face, and now, now at the crime scene of Peter and Barbara Pan. The police had tracked this particular shoe print and found that it was a newer style of the Via Tennis shoe and they were only sold at certain stores. 
This was evidence that was kept from the public, that is, until San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein disclosed it to the media. Ramirez saw this on the news and immediately went to the Golden Gate Bridge and tossed the sneakers over the side. Now feeling the heat in San Francisco, he was making his way back to Los Angeles when he stopped on August 24th at a home belonging to James Romero. The family had just returned from a vacation to Mexico earlier, and Romero's 13-year-old son was still awake at the time Ramirez was staking out the house. Hearing a noise outside, the son ran to his parents' bedroom and told them of the prowler. James ran outside just in time to catch a glimpse of the make, model, and color of the car Ramirez fled in, as well as a partial plate number. But not to be deterred, Ramirez then approached the home of Bill Carnes and his fiancée, Inez Erickson. He broke in and found the sleeping couple in their room. Bill was awakened by the sound of Ramirez loading a bullet in the chamber. Within an instant, Bill was shot three times in the head, and Ramirez turned his attention to Inez. He bound her with neckties he found from the closet, and then after robbing the home, he raped and sodomized her. As he was leaving, he told her, Tell them the Night Stalker was here. After he left, she untied herself and ran to a neighbor's house for help. Emergency personnel were able to rush Bill to the hospital in time to save his life. Inez was able to give the police a detailed description of Ramirez, including his disgusting, rotting teeth, as well as a description of the vehicle he was driving. On August 28th, police in Los Angeles found the abandoned vehicle and were able to get a fingerprint, which came back belonging to Ricardo Ramirez. Police now had a name for the Night Stalker. They distributed his picture to all of the media outlets, and because Ramirez was in Arizona visiting his brother, he was unaware of the new discovery. On August 31st, Ramirez returned to Los Angeles. When he walked into a convenience store upon his return, he failed to notice stacks of newspapers on the racks outside. It wasn't until he looked out the window and saw a group of elderly women fearfully pointing him out to a police officer, saying, El Matador, which translates to The Killer, that he realized that it was his face on the cover of those newspapers. He ran in a panic. After crossing the freeway, he attempted to steal a car but was quickly thwarted by bystanders. He then ran approximately two miles, jumping fences and down city alleyways. He attempted to steal another car, but was attacked by people on the street, who profusely beat him with a metal pipe until police arrived. This marked the end of the Night Stalker. At his arraignment, Richard Ramirez entered the courtroom and yelled, Hail Satan! but no religious belief was going to help him. Ramirez was charged with 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault, and 14 counts of burglary. He was convicted on all counts and was sentenced to death. He died on June 13, 2013, from complications of B-cell lymphoma. Big deal. That's always going with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. So basically the crowd of people said, Nut stalk this bitch and started beating the fuck out of Ramirez. Good. With, with their hands, their feet, metal pipe, what else? Whatever they could get their hands God, on. I love some medieval fucking yeah. medieval uh you know, like payback. Yep. You know what I mean? Some public uh, execution. Yeah. <laughs> Beat the shit out of them. Put them in the stockades. Let's throw tomatoes at them. Now, the uh, the arriving officer that showed up, he was fearful that the angry mob of 200-plus citizens, uh, they would kill Ramirez and possibly himself, and did everything he could to prevent a public lynching until... Could you imagine in the middle of Los Angeles? Oh, just yeah. fucking just string them up on Hollywood up, yeah. Boulevard? That would, be, that would be iconic. Yeah. That, that would be actually, iconic. That would be, that would be a perfect ending to yes, this. Yes, it would. Right on Hollywood Boulevard, right yep. in front of Sunset, where yep. the where uh, eight, um, Molly Crew used to perform, right? Like, <laughs> hang him up on the balcony of uh, the Scorpion Lounge. Yeah. And just hang him. Hang, hang him, him in this car. Hang him high. Hang him high. Now, one of the things that came out after the fact was that uh, Ramirez would hang around these homes after murdering its occupants. 
Like he took his time, he went around. Now in, in the murder and rape of Peter and Barbara Pan, uh, Ramirez rummaged through their house after they, they were both dead and ate all of their food in the refrigerator. Like all of it. And then Ramirez proceeded to vomit all over the kitchen floor. So he scarfed down all of their food, threw it up everywhere, and he even had time to masturbate and ejaculate in their living room. So he murders the husband, rapes the wife, murders her, eats all their food. He made a whole night of it. Throws up everywhere, and then, yeah, you know what? I think I'll rub one out on this fucking carpet. You think he was just hungry? I mean, he did work up an appetite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying. No, I'm saying. Do you think... You know, being homeless, living at living at the Cecil Hotel, in and out. You, oh, you, you yeah. know what I mean? It, yeah. I don't think I don't think it was so much. You think he just saw all that food and he just gorged himself? Yeah, I think he just it. gorged himself. You know what I mean? He was yeah. just. I think it was more of he was hungry than it was trying to like a a, a like power thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Could be. Could be. So now you know we we we've talked about you know people finding love behind bars. Uh, Ramirez actually got married while he was in prison. Well, it's added to the list. Yep. So in October of 1996, Ramirez married freelance reporter Doreen Leoy in a mass wedding, which consisted of nine other inmates. So they're all... God, probably yeah. a beautiful beautiful ceremony. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful ceremony, nice, right? Nice music. And just seeing love, just feeling the love throughout the whole... What is wrong with these women? I don't fucking know. Was, who, was, who was Bundy married to when he... Uh... Oh, yeah. Ah, uh, fuck. Who Manson was married to? She was a stalker. Yeah. The Bundy one. She was a stalker. Yep. Now this one, uh, uh, fuck if I know, but I don't know. But although Ramirez wasn't allowed uh, conjugal visits, so they never consummated their marriage allegedly. He and Doreen had lived a happily wedded life through the bars of the San Quentin death row. Uh, Doreen, who is basically disowned by her family, says that uh, she saw no vulnerability in him, and nobody knew him like I did. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. That's what they all want. To which every single person associated with the case responded to... Uh, Fuck you. You are batshit fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, all those people that lost loved ones and family members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you're really uh, helping us oh, out. Oh, you know, you know he's, a, he's a kind soul. He, he, he miraculously found God he, in prison. <laughs> oh, so did yeah. Dahmer. So yeah. did all these guys. Yeah. yeah. It's convenient how they find God. Now, there is a, another part to this story that wasn't covered, and it's, this wasn't known until 2009. It was the murder on April 10th, 1984, of nine-year-old May Leung. Uh, she was living in the same residential hotel as Ramirez in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. Uh, she was raped. She was found raped and beat uh, and hung from a pipe in the basement. Uh, DNA evidence confirmed that Ramirez was her, her killer, However, in 2016, uh, previously unknown DNA evidence was processed, and it was determined that there was a second suspect present Mm. at her rape and murder. But because this DNA showed that the suspect was a juvenile at the time, uh, his information was never made public, and charges were not filed due to insufficient evidence. Oh, that's so shitty. Yeah, so this person who was a a juvenile during this murder... uh, has walked free and will continue to walk free until they die. It's almost eerie. Yeah. Because if you think about it, was Ramirez just following in the same footsteps of Miguel? Showing. His father. Passing on his. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah, at this point? Yeah. That's almost, it's almost creepy if you really think about it. Yeah. He had, a, was, he had an understudy. Yeah. He was doing the exact same thing that the, you know, those people that did for him. That brings up a fucking great point, Garrett. Yeah. Good job. Creepy. Wow. Creepy if you think about it. Yeah. So. Actually, this was the only crime in which uh, Ramirez was known to have had an accomplice. So, that they could see. Yeah. You know, who knows what else. Yeah, he was not the one to give them information either. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, was, he wasn't the guy who was saying, like, oh, I'll tell you where the bodies are. I'll do this. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't want the fame. Yeah. He did it for the, the, the love of the game. Yeah. And for his uh, Satanist spirit to go yeah. to Disney World. <laughs> see you at Disney World. All right, so that'll do it for Night Stalk This. All right, before we go, if you liked what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to become one of the debauched on Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF. There's five tiers, and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. 
Uh, links to our support, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description, or you can visit criminalafpodcast.com for all of your criminal AF needs. Signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel, and take care until next time. Now, now give me our theme music. See ya. <laughs>